History This Week, October 27th, 1962. I'm Sally Helm. The plane is flying at 72,000 feet, way up in the stratosphere, making its way over the Straits of Florida towards the beaches of central Cuba. The pilot, Rudolph Anderson Jr., is a major in the U.S. Air Force. His plane, a U-2, is equipped with a huge camera. And his mission is to take pictures, gather intelligence. Because the U.S. military has recently learned that the Soviet Union had deployed nuclear weapons to the Cubans. It is a major escalation in the Cold War. Cuba is just 90 miles off the tip of Florida, so the U.S. mainland is now well within range of a nuclear strike. Anderson enters Cuban airspace over a beach called Cayo Coco, then begins to fly across the island over a town called Camagüey. Soviet defense forces on the ground have set up a command post in an old mansion. The first floor contains a huge screen where they can watch the radar for intruders. And they spot Major Anderson. They name him target number 33. Anderson flies on, taking pictures. His plane shudders when the camera clicks. He's now turned over the southern coast of Cuba, near Guantanamo Bay. And the forces on the ground are getting very nervous. This plane has seen some sensitive missile sites. If the pilot makes it out of Cuban airspace, the U.S. will have crucial new intelligence. The Soviet general in charge has gone home to get some rest. Two lower-level officers try to reach him, but they can't and they decide to act on their own. They give the order, destroy target number 33. They fire two missiles and hit their target. Major Anderson likely dies instantly. In that moment, he becomes the first casualty of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was a moment of truth that could end very badly. We'd come close to a nuclear war and it wasn't clear what was going to happen. Today, how, at the peak of the Cold War, did a combination of political choices and bad luck push the world into nuclear chaos? And how did leadership, diplomacy, and chance pull us back to safety? 
Michael Dobbs is a veteran journalist. He worked for many years as a foreign correspondent for The Washington Post, based at one point in Moscow. He ended up writing a book about the end of the Cold War. And that got him interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis, because... Well, that's the peak of the Cold War. That's the moment when we probably came closer to nuclear apocalypse than either before or since. In the early 1960s, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are both superpowers, and they each have their sphere of influence. In some places, most notably in Berlin, they're coming close to open conflict. And the threat of violence between the two countries is very scary because they both have nuclear weapons. In some ways, the nuclear standoff froze the military balance between East and West because nobody dared to use their nuclear weapons. But it also made it extremely dangerous because just a spark or a miscalculation would result not only in a conventional war, but a nuclear war that would result in millions and millions of fatalities. In both countries and around the world, there's a real fear that this might happen. People are preparing. Building bunkers below people's houses, civil defense drills. A lot of people growing up from that period remember drills in stools in which they had to dive under your desk and duck and cover. In 1961, while school children all over the nation are learning to hide from nuclear fallout under their desks, the U.S. inaugurates a new president. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute... President Kennedy draws a very stark contrast with the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, Nikita Khrushchev. By the way, that's the way Michael Dobbs pronounces it, and it's slightly closer to the Russian pronunciation. The American pronunciation is often Khrushchev. But anyway, the two world leaders... They look and act completely differently. Kennedy, of course, very good-looking, smooth, you know, the picture of refinement. He has a full head of hair. Khrushchev looks what he was, which was a peasant from Ukraine, almost a foot shorter than Kennedy, and uh, practically bald, but much tougher than Kennedy in some ways. And, of course, there's this huge difference in age. When Kennedy is inaugurated, Khrushchev is 66, and Kennedy is more than 20 years younger. He's 43. From Khrushchev's point of view, he was completely untested, a bit of a playboy, and thought Kennedy was a young man he could push around. At one point he says, that man is young enough to be my son. These two very different men will soon be on opposite sides of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, of course, there's another nation and another leader involved. Fidel Castro has been prime minister of Cuba since 1959, when his socialist revolution overthrew the American-backed leader, General Fulgencio Batista. Fidel is an extraordinary character, one of the great characters of history. Over six feet tall, he was called the horse, the caballo, by his followers. And he reminded the Soviet leaders of their youth you know, breathing new life and energy into the communist movement. There was a kind of romantic dimension to this. Very soon after he comes to power, President Kennedy provokes Fidel Castro's anger when he launches the ill-fated Bay of Pigs invasion, or as it's known in Cuba, the invasion of Playa Giron. Kennedy sends a force of exiled Cubans to try and overthrow Castro, but it doesn't work. 
and is rapidly surrounded by Castro's forces. It's a disaster from the U.S. point of view. But although this is a fiasco, Castro is convinced that Kennedy is going to try again. And in fact, throughout the end of 1961, the beginning of 1962, there's no armed invasion, but there are other attempts by the U.S. to sabotage Castro's regime and eventually to overthrow Castro. So Castro, who is this strong, romantic figure to some in the Soviet Union, appeals to them for military support. He's essentially asking for defensive backup. He wants to make sure the U.S. can't overthrow him. But Khrushchev sees an even bigger opportunity. At that time, in 1961-1962, the Soviet Union is trailing behind the U.S. in the production of nuclear weapons. So Khrushchev perceives the opportunity of correcting this nuclear imbalance by deploying hundreds of nuclear weapons to Cuban shores just right off the coast of uh, Florida, right on the doorstep of the United States. So Khrushchev offers Castro nuclear weapons, and the Cuban leader accepts. In July and August of 1962, the first shipments make their way to the island. The defensive weapons arrive first. They could only shoot something at short range, like a plane flying over. The nuclear warheads, which could be used to attack the U.S. mainland, are secretly on their way. The CIA has no idea, but they do know that something is up. They're aware of a military buildup. They're aware of Soviet troops moving to Cuba, although they're disguised as agricultural technicians. In fact, they're all told to wear checkered shirts, civilian clothes. And the Russian soldiers joked about this. They said, this is Operation Checkered Shirt. But the U.S. intelligence quickly picked up the fact that there were surface-to-air missile sites ringing Cuba. The question was, why are the Soviets bringing all these troops and weapons to Cuba? There was a debate in the CIA about this, and some thought, well, obviously it's to defend something even more important. Something like nuclear weapons. But a lot of people don't believe that's possible. The consensus within the agency and within the government was that Soviets would not dare to send nuclear missiles to Cuba because they'd never done that before. They'd never stationed nuclear missiles outside the Soviet Union itself. As suspicion heightens in the U.S., John Kennedy sends his brother Bobby to meet with the Soviet ambassador, who assures him that the Soviets will never send atomic weapons to Cuba. So, with this CIA consensus and the word of the Soviet ambassador, JFK goes on national television, September 13th, 1962. But I will repeat the conclusion that I reported last week, that these new shipments do not constitute a serious threat to any other part of this hemisphere. He makes what amounts to a promise. If at any time... The communist buildup in Cuba were to endanger or interfere with our security in any way, or if Cuba should ever become an offensive military base of significant capacity for the Soviet Union, then this country will do whatever must be done to protect its own security and that of its allies. Kennedy says at that time, well, 
If it turns out that the Soviets actually do send nuclear missiles to Cuba, we will not tolerate this. We will make sure that the Soviets withdraw those missiles. So he drew a line in the sand well before the missile crisis. Meanwhile, as Kennedy makes that speech, nuclear weapons are headed to the island. They'll arrive in three days. But the U.S. won't know this until almost a month later, because September in Cuba is hurricane season, which means U.S. spying flights are stalled. It's not until October that the weather clears up enough for a U.S. plane to get a glimpse of what's really going on. On October 14th, 1962, a U-2 spy plane flies over Cuba and takes high-speed photographs, 928 snapshots in minutes. When those photos are developed, they show some ominous tubes in the town of San Cristobal. The CIA's photo interpreters were able to establish pretty quickly that they were, in fact, nuclear missiles aimed at the United States. On the morning of October 16th, Kennedy's national security advisor tells the president. He brings the photographs into Kennedy's bedroom, and Kennedy is stunned by this. He realizes he's been tricked by Khrushchev, so he's very angry. His brother, Bobby, who's an even more emotional character, is even angrier and wants to immediately get back at the Soviets. The 16th is what we call the beginning of the 13 days. The missiles aren't yet operational. They're not ready to fire. So Kennedy has a few days to figure out what to do. He calls together an advisory group, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, XCOM for short, and they go over the options. There's a faction in the XCOM that wants to attack immediately, and there's another faction that urges restraint. And John Kennedy himself is sort of caught between these two rival factions. Remember, he had told the American public just about a month earlier that there were no nuclear weapons in Cuba and that if there ever were any, they would not be tolerated. So his credibility is on the line. It's also a midterm election year, and there are big geopolitical considerations. Kennedy fears that if he allows himself to be pushed around and to abandon these red lines that he's established, then people will say, well, Khrushchev has got the better of him. And uh, he might try the same trick in other parts of the world, including Berlin. Which could lead to war. Kennedy has fought in a conventional war, World War II. And as a result of his experiences in the military, he understood how things can get out of hand. You know, things can go badly wrong. A nuclear war, of course, would be far, far worse. Kennedy does not want to push the world towards annihilation. The president and the XCOM debate for several days. And finally, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara suggests a way to buy them a little more time. They're going to establish a naval blockade around Cuba, ensure that no more Soviet ships or subs can enter, and also make a show of strength. On October 22nd, President Kennedy goes on TV. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government to finally tell the American people that there are nuclear weapons in Cuba, pointed right at them. Each of these missiles, in short, is capable of striking Washington, D.C., the Panama Canal, Cape Canaveral, Mexico City, 
or any other city in the southeastern part of the United States. He announces his plan, the blockade. He actually calls it a quarantine. That's a diplomatic way of saying a, a blockade, but it sounds not quite as threatening. They didn't want to throw it in the face of the Russians. They still wanted to open a period of negotiations. This nation is opposed to war. We are also true to our word. Our unswerving objective, therefore, must be to prevent the use of these missiles against this or any other country and to secure their withdrawal or elimination from the Western Hemisphere. It's a very measured speech. He delivers it in a matter-of-fact tone of voice. He tries to calm people, but he also tries to convey firmness that uh, one way or the other, he's going to force the Soviets to withdraw their nuclear weapons from Cuba. God willing, that goal will be achieved. Thank you and good night. Meanwhile, when Kennedy delivers his speech, there's a meeting of the Soviet Communist Party underway in the Kremlin. Khrushchev had gotten a copy of the speech hours before it was delivered. And he realizes that his big plan in Cuba is in peril. He never meant the Americans to discover these missiles now. Khrushchev wanted to scare Kennedy. He wanted to present the Americans with a fait accompli. But he's discovered uh, pretty much red-handed before his missiles are ready to fire. So his immediate reaction is one that's close to panic. He certainly does not want a nuclear war. Khrushchev wants to avoid that as much as Kennedy does. And pretty soon, he gets a letter from the American leader. Yes, a letter. There was no hotline between Moscow and Washington in those days. Instead, they sent cables. Sometimes bike messengers would bring them from the Soviet embassy to the cable company to be sent to Moscow. It could take 12, 14 hours to get a message from Kennedy to Khrushchev and another 12 hours to get a message back again. And this was one of the factors that made this a particularly dangerous crisis. When Khrushchev does get Kennedy's letter, it says the U.S. is looking for a peaceful way out of the crisis. But it must end with the Soviets withdrawing their missiles from Cuba. Khrushchev responds strongly. Saying, well, if you want to fight, then we're ready to fight. We're not going to back down. But in practice, he's actually sending different signals. That same day, he instructs Soviet ships that were heading towards the blockade line to turn around and head back to the USSR. Dobbs's research shows they don't even make it close to the American naval ships defending the line, though the popular image of this moment is of a confrontation on the high seas. Still, it is a victory for Kennedy's blockade. It's buying them some time. But the crisis is far from solved. And the public is terrified. Millions of people live within striking distance of the Cuban missiles. At one point, Kennedy asks an advisor whether it would be possible to evacuate Miami in the event the U.S. tries to take out the missiles with a military strike. But they decide that evacuation would be impractical. People are clearing the shelves at grocery stores. They're buying guns, not necessarily to protect themselves from the Soviets, but because they're worried about rippling chaos and unrest after the bomb falls. And all the while, Khrushchev and Kennedy are writing letters back and forth, trying to find a resolution. In one of the letters, Khrushchev says, well, we're like two men pulling on a piece of string. And if we keep on pulling, the string is going to get tighter and tighter. 
and there'll be no way of untangling the knot in the middle of the string. So we must loosen the string. An opportunity to loosen the string comes on October 26th, when a Soviet KGB agent meets with an ABC News correspondent and hints that if the U.S. promises not to invade Cuba, the USSR will remove their nuclear weapons. It's a glimmer of hope. But the very next day, the knot begins to tighten again. October 27th will become known as Black Saturday. So many different things were happening. In fact, in my view, it represents the beginning of a nuclear war, the first stages in a nuclear war. Kennedy and his advisors woke up on Saturday morning thinking that a peace agreement might be close. But unexpectedly, Khrushchev gets on the radio and publicly demands something more. Khrushchev proposes a deal to Kennedy saying, I'll take my missiles out of Cuba if you'll take your missiles out of Turkey. The previous year, the U.S. had placed nuclear weapons in Turkey within striking distance of Moscow. So Khrushchev is proposing a nuclear swap. Kennedy and his advisors are worried this could undermine the NATO alliance and be seen as a victory for the Soviet Union. Some on XCOM didn't want to hear of it, but it's still not completely off the table. And then, pretty soon, the events of the day begin to spin out of control. One of the first things that happened was that a man called Rudy Anderson, at about 10 in the morning, U.S. time, flies over Cuban territory. Anderson is shot down. This happens at around 11.20 a.m. D.C. time. The president doesn't know yet. And just 40 minutes later, something else happens. A mistake. A different U-2 plane had been sent from Alaska to gather totally unrelated intelligence at the North Pole. It was meant to come back immediately to Alaska, but the pilot made a navigation error. And instead of ending up back in Alaska, he ended up over the Eastern Soviet Union on the most dangerous day of the missile crisis. The Soviets send up planes, fighter jets, to try to shoot him down. But the U-2 is too high, and it flies away unscathed. When Kennedy's informed, he says, well, there's always some son of a bitch that doesn't get the word. I mean, it's an extraordinary story that had that U-2 been lost as well, it could have caused the U.S. to react to it. It could have been the second casualty of the crisis. It could have pushed things in a different direction. But instead, the U-2 makes it back to Alaska safely. When Kennedy finds out about this U-2 that's in trouble, he still doesn't know that Major Anderson has been shot down. But minutes after he hears about U-2 number one, the word comes through that Anderson's plane is missing. And later that evening, Kennedy finds out that the pilot is dead. He, and also Khrushchev, realized that this was no longer a Cold War. It was actually a real war in which people were getting killed. Some in Kennedy's circle want immediate retaliation. They believe Khrushchev ordered the strike. But Kennedy doesn't believe that. He thinks, and it turns out rightly, that Khrushchev wasn't aware of the order. So he decides not to retaliate immediately. 
And meanwhile, there is a third close call brewing. Earlier in the day, the U.S. military had detected a Soviet submarine lurking in the waters between Cuba and the U.S. It was close to violating Kennedy's blockade. They have it surrounded, and the U.S. naval ships didn't know it, but this sub was carrying nuclear missiles. On board the Soviet sub, the three leaders are trying to decide what to do. The U.S. is dropping warning explosives all around them. They're not sure if this is an act of war. And so, completely unbeknownst to their leader back in Moscow, they take a vote. Do we shoot these missiles and destroy these ships? Two voted yes, the third dissented. And so, they surfaced because the vote wasn't unanimous. So that crisis is diffused. It has been a day of very close calls. And at the end of it, Kennedy makes a final diplomatic push. One of Kennedy's virtues was that he didn't know everything that was going on, but he understood that time was running out and that he was losing control of events. So he sends his brother, Bobby, his closest advisor, to meet with the Soviet ambassador, Anatoly Dobrynin. Bobby Kennedy urges the Soviet ambassador to take a simple deal. You take out the nuclear weapons, we won't attack Cuba. And Dobrynin says, well, okay, what about the American missiles in Turkey? And Bobby Kennedy says, well, if that's the obstacle to peace, then we will accept that as a concession on one condition, that this remains secret. We'll withdraw our missiles from Turkey, but nobody should know about it, and in fact, Nobody found out about that for another 30, 40 years. When the word gets back to Khrushchev on the morning of October 28th, Soviet time, he's ready to accept. In fact, time feels so tight that he doesn't even wait to send a letter. They announced their decision over the radio, which is heard instantly in Washington. And by midday on October the 28th, it's become clear that the worst isn't going to happen, that both sides have taken a step back from the brink, and there is a solution to this crisis. October 28th is a Sunday, and as a new week begins, the world feels a little safer. The Cuban Missile Crisis can begin to be told as a story of triumph. But Dobbs says he thinks many people have looked at this story and taken the wrong lesson. For many years, the lesson that was drawn was that if we're tough, then we can force the other side to back down. The real lesson, he says, is more about chance. Once you go to war, all bets are off. The leaders and the commanders do not know everything that is happening, taking place on the battlefield. And mistakes are always made in any war, but you can't afford to make mistakes in a nuclear war. He says, just look at Black Saturday. One of these small incidents could easily have developed into a nuclear confrontation between two superpowers armed with weapons that could kill millions and millions of people. The leaders can't control everything, but they did have a choice about how to react, and they were able to find a way to avert disaster. They formed a common alliance against nuclear annihilation. When John Kennedy is assassinated just about a year later, 
Khrushchev writes a letter to express his condolences to Jackie Kennedy. And Jackie writes back to Khrushchev, the danger which troubled my husband was that war might be started not so much by the big men as by the little ones. While big men know the need for self-control and restraint, little men are sometimes moved more by fear and pride. I think both Kennedy and Khrushchev showed themselves, despite many mistakes that they made, and despite all the saber-rattling, in the end they showed themselves to be big men rather than little men. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a one-month extended free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device, with new videos added every week. To start your free one-month trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.